Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 27th. Listening to that intro, leading thinkers, I'm not sure what that means. Maybe I should rephrase that as the most counterintuitive. I always like to have people on the show who aren't just repeating what you're hearing on the major networks. I won't mention their names. We all know who I'm talking about. Uh, last year, one of my favorite counterintuitive writers and thinkers is the FT columnist uh, Yanan Ganesh. Uh, he came on the show last year talking about how presciently I think Joe Biden is further to the left than you think. Uh, Yanan's observations were proved in fact. And I was particularly intrigued by a piece that uh, Yanan wrote a couple of days ago, a thought piece in the weekend FT about talking about the war, of course, the war in Ukraine that puts Silicon Valley in its place. Yanan's arguing that, uh, and I'm quoting him here, tech is relevant in Ukraine, see the propaganda war, but next to the existential role of energy, which keeps Russia solvent and has the West scrambling for alternative sources, what stands out is the modesty of its bearing on events. Silicon Valley is giving history a nudge here and there, no doubt, but not setting its essential course. Uh, there is still That is still the role of people who dig stuff out of the ground for fuel. In other words, what really matters, according to Yanan, is uh, the oil industry. He says... Um, but we don't really realize it. Uh, it's ever detached from the zeitgeist. And he asked, who reading this can name the CEO of ExxonMobil? I, I, I certainly can't. And uh, Yanan's observations about the importance of oil in Ukraine are, are, have been reflected uh, by a number of conversations we've had over the last month. Professor of uh, Political Economy at Cambridge, Helen Thompson, has a new sh a book out called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, which she suggests that we're returning to the 1970s, the hard times of energy shortages and inflation. Um, and then the left-wing radio columnist Tom Hartman has also been on the show suggesting that Putin's Ukraine invasion isn't essentially, as an oil war, any different from G.W. Bush's Iraq invasion. Um, Yanan quotes, and I'm quoting him again, in his masterly history of oil, the prize, Daniel Yergin concedes that in the future, political power will come as much from a computer chip as from a barrel of oil. And quoting Yergin means that we have to have the great Yergin, Daniel Yergin, the author of The New Map and many other books about oil on the show. And I'm thrilled that um, Daniel has reappeared. He was on the show last month in February, just before Putin's invasion of Ukraine, and thrilled that he's back in part to talk about the um, the, the, the Ganesh piece, but also as a catch-up, Daniel. Uh, we talked at the beginning of February, just before the invasion uh, of Ukraine. We compared that potential invasion to the beginnings of the First World War in historical terms. Um, are we still teetering on the brink of a catastrophe a la World War I, or, or has your thinking changed over the last 40 or 50 days? Uh, thank you, Andrew. And uh, actually, it's good to be back on. And it's a, 
you know, it's just striking to think how much the world has changed in uh, two months. I think that the fact that the Russian military has done so poorly and the Ukrainians so well, and that uh, as before the First World War, there are a lot of miscalculations and Putin made five or six of them, which are now playing out. Uh, but there's still the risk that uh, Putin uh, directly and indirectly uh, himself and through his spokespeople has still uh, raised the specter of, of uh, nuclear weapons being used here in extremists. And uh, that certainly puts the world on edge. But we are seeing a rearrangement of global power right now uh, and uh, Russia being cut off from the West. And uh, basically its only future is to adhere to China. You bring up the specter of nuclear war. This morning I talked to Michael Ignatiev, very prominent Canadian political philosopher and historian in, in Vienna. And he suggested that we can't take the nuclear bomb off the table when it comes to confronting Putin. Do you think that Ignatiev's warning is correct? Do we need to stand up to Putin by suggesting that if he's going to put nuclear weapons on the table, we need to too? Uh, well, I think that's the issue that is now being debated actually in Washington, how to respond to, uh, to, uh, to uh, an escalation if it does occur, either in use, whether using chemical weapons or whether it is tactical nuclear weapons. And tactical nuclear weapons are in, uh, as uh, Michael may have remarked, is part of uh, Russian military doctrine. You're talking to me from Washington, D.C., Daniel. I'm not sure whether you've been party to some of these discussions, but um, should that make us pretty scared? It certainly is chilling in my mind that someone as sensible and credible as Michael Ignatiev is, is using the N-word. I think what it shows is um, that there's a concern about how desperate Putin will be to have some kind of victory. And uh, he's not having it in terms of his land forces. He is using missiles and he is using, uh, obviously, drones and so forth and art artillery bar barrages. But, uh, you know, people speculate, is that Putin in a corner more dangerous than Putin not in a corner? So I think, I think uh, you know, for some time people have been talking about where's the off-ramp for Putin. He hasn't left very many opportunities for uh an off-ramp, given what he's gone in and the way he's doubled down. Daniel, let's go back to where we began with the idea of Ukraine as an oil war. Is it is it an energy war? Or is that an oversimplification? I think it's an oversimplification. I think energy is a very big part of it because Russia, Ukraine, natural gas, oil, Western Europe, those things are all tied together. And I think that one of Putin's miscalculations was assuming because of the relatively high dependence that Europe has on Russian oil and gas that uh, the Europeans would kind of uh, protest. And of course, he thought he was going to take Kiev in three days, another miscalculation, uh, but that they would protest, but ultimately kind of wave it on. And this would be, I think, in his mind, Crimea part two, just continuing what he'd done before to fulfill what was really, he set out as war aims, uh, his declaration of war last July in a paper saying, Ukrainians and Russians are one people and need to be reunited. Of course, what he's actually been doing is trying to kill Ukrainians and killing Ukrainians and doing that. So um, I think that um, 
so energy very much figures into all of this, but it's also about uh, Putin basically wanting to relitigate uh, the end of the Cold War and uh, change the terms, reassert Russia as, a, as a, a superpower. And one doesn't know during these two years of isolation of COVID, kind of did he lose his, his ability to, to calculate correctly and simply surrounded by a few people who told him what he wanted to do. I'm sure, Andrew, that the people on the economic side, the civil, call it the civil side of the Russian government, absolutely not in favor of this. Their lives are ruined. They're cut, cut, cut off from the Western world. They wanted to be part of the global economy. They're, that opportunity is gone for them. So it's really, it seems, a small circle of people around Putin who told him what he wanted to hear, and he acted upon it, and it hasn't turned out any way that he thought it would. Daniel, you were on the other K, big K podcast. You were on the Ezra Klein show. And you suggested, you mentioned superpower before, you suggested that Russia's days as an energy superpower might be over. Do you really believe that? I I mean, all that oil and gas is still in the ground, isn't it? Yeah, but I think I would say it almost definitely is over. You've seen the Western companies pull out. That means technology is pulling out finance is pulling out. And I think the key thing that you've seen is that the Europeans saying, sorry, the marriage is over. We're done. We don't, you know, we for 50 years, we believed Russia is a reliable supplier. Russia is now an unwanted supplier, and they are moving to unplug themselves from Russian energy. Not easy to do, but I think that Russia is still going to be a significant producer, but it's going to be a reduced energy power. And uh, it's just, uh, and I think it's actually its oil industry is likely to go into a decline for lack of investment, lack of technology, and being somewhat disconnected from some of the most important global markets of which Europe was its most important market. Let's talk a little bit about Europe. Um, There was another piece in the FT by Martin Sambu, who actually was also on our show recently, written a book against populism, suggesting that globalization isn't the problem. He suggests that Post-Ukraine, the case for a joint European energy procurement uh, strategy is what he calls irresistible. Do you agree? Does this require, does does Putin's invasion of Ukraine require the Europeans to go back to the drawing board in terms of figuring out where they get their energy from? Yes, I think that's already happened. Uh, The most dramatic change is Germany, which saw uh, peace through trade and believed that trade with the Soviet Union was one of the factors that opened the windows and the doors and people could see the rest of the world and help precipitate the end of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. But they have 180 degree change now. They, they're, first of all, they're stepping up their budget, they're recommitting to NATO, and they're saying that we want to, we want to, we need a lot of gas, but we're going to source it from the world market. We're not going to source it from Russia. And I think in general, you're seeing this change. We just had a, our conference, our CIR Week conference in Houston, and there were people there, senior people from the European Union who were there, literally almost stopping people in the hallway saying, do you have some LNG, liquefied natural gas, that we can take to help us replace Russian gas? And so I think a big reorientation is going on. The Europeans obviously going to step up renewables to reduce the need for gas and electricity, but they're going to also look for LNG and one of their biggest sources for LNG, as we heard from President Biden last week, is going to be the United States, which 
this year is going to become the largest exporter of LNG, liquefied natural gas, in the world. And we'll be in that, that position at least for the next few years. I want to talk specifically about how this changes the American energy industry and the politics of the American energy industry in a minute. Uh, but Daniel, uh, before doing this, I, I texted a, a good friend of mine, a, 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 a trader based in London, asking him, he, he, he's a big fan of you. And I said, what shall I ask Daniel? And he said, um, ask him whether traders should be sanctioned because they're filling the gaps, according to him. Uh, I won't mention his name. I did a little bit of research before this and noted that uh, Western comp- uh, Western trading companies like uh, Glencore and Vitol work with Rosneft, the Russian uh, energy company. So is there a lot of under-the-table business going on here, Daniel, where um, Western uh, traders are essentially trading oil and gas to China and no one really knows where it comes from because oil and gas looks the same wherever it emerges. No, I think, I think, I think that's um, I think a great question from your friend. I think that, you know, it's pretty clear now. It's, you, can, you can follow, know where every t- the tankers are, who's filling up and things like that. I think the thing is before Putin launched this insane war, uh, Russia was an important source of energy for the world. About uh, it was one of the largest exporters of oil and gas, and it was one of the markets you went to. And by the way, world markets were very tight, and the trading companies were part of that. Uh, it was nothing nefarious about it. it. Was a it was a business. You picked up Russian oil, and it may have ended up in a lot of places, including in the northeast of the United States, actually, but mainly Europe and then China are the two major markets for it. But now it's a different situation, and what you're seeing is a process of self-sanctioning going on where people say, we don't want Russian oil. Uh, Port workers in England saying you can't land Russian oil here. And the traders uh, are contractually bound to pick up the oil because uh, they're not official sanctions, so they can't declare what's called force majeure. But I uh, I think the Ukrainians are going to, among others, uh, are stepping up a campaign. And it's possible that we may see sanctions on uh, or an embargo on the import or partial import of Russian oil. Russian natural gas is harder, but that in the short term, but they may happen. And then that will affect what the what the companies are doing. Uh, I think the Chinese look at this as an opportunity to pick up Russian oil at a big discount. And by the way, it's selling at a big discount. And India has announced that it's going to buy, try and buy a good deal of Russian oil uh, also at a much dis- discounted price and not pay in dollars, but pay in, in rupees. But then you still have all the logistics of how exactly you get that Russian oil from uh, the Baltic all the way to uh, Mumbai. Yeah, the, uh, I picked up a piece where you, you get quoted everywhere, Daniel. Um, even the Times of India is quoting oh. Daniel Jurgen on how the how Ukraine war could I better read that. I better read that article. You better read it. You you know, you're you're ubiquitous, Daniel. You're like oil and gas. Um, The China issue is, of course, incredibly important and serious. You had a wonderful piece in The Atlantic recently uh, about the South China Sea, suggesting that this might be the world's most important body of water. How is this changing China and energy? I mean, what difference is it making to China's role both 
in political and economic terms as a consumer of energy, of other people's well, energy. It's certainly taken the spotlight off China. And, and that essay, I'm, uh, thank you for your words about it. I, it's in the new paperback edition of the new map. I've actually included that essay because I wanted to give it long legs because I think it's, it's a very important topic. Yeah, I agree. Well. It's a wonderful essay. And it is in yeah. the new paperback, which just came out, the new map, uh, Daniel's uh, wonderful new book, which uh is what is it the fourth or fifth book it's on top of the quest the prize the commanding right. heights you're yeah, you're I, an industry and in yourself daniel yesterday i was counting books that i've written or co-authored and i i was counting on my fingers i think i came up with eight so uh, quite an achievement well most people associate i mean the new map is of course your latest book and then everyone's read the prize many people have read the quest you've 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 popularized uh the politics and economics of energy in a way that's incredibly and important. the commanding heights that you have there goes back to your question about globalization and uh which i think um you know this is certainly the end of we're at the end of an era a 30-year era of, of globalization it's a different global economy and of course that gets you to the question of china yeah so let's go back to china as i said uh, you you have this essay the world's most important body of water which was in the atlantic and now is in the paperback of the new map what's how is this war changing china how could it change china china's relations with the west with russia well i think china is in a balancing act right now uh remember andrew at the beginning of the olympics now seems an age ago putin signed this agreement with uh with xi president xi in which they said there are no limits to our cooperation. And you have to wonder, did Putin actually tell Xi what he was going to do? Or did he just say, we're going to just take that, those eastern provinces and southeastern provinces of Ukraine? Because I wonder if Xi, who has his own things to worry about, would have signed an agreement like that or a declaration like that if he knew that Putin was going to do something this crazy this and this foolhardy and this risky. Uh, I, the Chinese are interested in stability. You know, Xi, of course, is going to get his third term later this year. Uh, not no competition, uh, and um, uh, you know, and obviously he has talked about the China dream and and incorporating ultimately Taiwan one way or the other. So the Taiwan question is still out there, and I think the Chinese will be studying this situation very carefully. What's happened? They'll study. You know, they set up a, a research institute after the collapse of the Soviet Union to, to, to analyze what Gorbachev had done wrong. And I think they'll be studying these sanctions really carefully uh, for, say, what does it mean for them? And of course, China is much more integrated into the global economy than, uh, than Russia is. And I think certainly the Russians were not prepared. I don't think the Chinese or anybody was prepared to see the scale and power and impact of these sanctions. And so they'll look at it in, in you know, they'll look at it in different ways. Uh, but right now, you know, really the question is, does China just maintain its balancing act? Does it tilt more strongly towards Russia? And if it does that, uh, what are the follow-on effects in its relations with the United States and, and the West? Or does it kind of continue in this, uh, this balancing act? I think one outcome of this is that Russia Will be much more dependent upon China as its market, and the Chinese will look at Russia as a place that they can get a lot of raw materials at a pretty good price. In other words, it seems as if, as so often in all these major international crises, the real winner will be China. Um, Daniel, we talked, you, you, you touched on America and changes in America because of 
Ukraine. I want to take a short break. And then afterwards, I want to specifically address America's new role in the global um, energy markets and how that might reshape our politics and culture and society. So we're back in 30 seconds with Daniel Jurgen, the author of The New Map, talking about the new, new map, the new, new map of the world post-Ukraine, particularly in the United States. Stay with us, everyone, for Daniel Jurgen. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Daniel Jurgen, the author of The New Map. Daniel's one of the most frequent guests on the show because he's so important in terms of making sense of the world, particularly in the context of energy. Uh, he was on the show about 50 or 60 days ago, and uh, before we started broadcasting, I asked him if anything had changed, and he told me that he's become a bit of a star on Fox News. No, uh, I, no I, I didn't say that. <laughs> what did you say then, Daniel? I just said that they had a very nice uh, article about the new map explaining what the book is about. and what. Yeah, no, I'm teasing you, but okay. you were... Uh, slightly surprised and perhaps slightly ashamed, but also not entirely ashamed that no. um, you wouldn't no, have expected yourself on, on Fox News. What are you saying in uh, in all seriousness, Daniel? What are you saying about changes in energy right. policy in America right. that has resulted in you getting quite a sympathetic hearing on Fox? No, I, think it was, I think it was a very straightforward article that really reflected reflected what the book is and kind of what I've been thinking about. And so... Uh, you know, and it was a nice ex exposition of the book. Uh, what I'm saying is that it turns out that shale revolution has been a geopolitical asset to the United States. Europe would be, might not well have been able to withstand where it is today were it not for US LNG, for the shale revolution, which made possible US liquefied natural gas going to Europe. And, 
you know, it's sort of kind of taken for granted or a lot of people just, you know, are kind of hostile to the idea of it, but it's been a real revolution uh, that's been economically important. And now we see how politically important it is. And I think last time I was on the show, Andrew, I mentioned that story about my run-in with Putin, where he early on knew that shale was bad news for him, bad news for his political position. And it's been borne out by what's happening right now. I mean, just last week, we saw the president uh, pledging to send more natural gas uh, to Europe, and the Europeans very keen to have it. So this is a, a this has turned out to be a very significant thing. And of course, again, not much noticed, but the US went from importing 60% of its oil, which drove eight presidents crazy, and they all kept promising energy independence and it seemed impossible to get it. And now, in fact, we are energy independent. We've gone from importing 60% of our oil to, on a net basis, not needing to import any oil at all and being a natural gas exporter, which is not only important for Europe, it's also important for our relations with Japan and Korea and other countries around the world, even India. Yeah, as you said, uh, in, a, in, a, in a February piece in the Wall Street Journal, Americans taking pole position in oil and gas. Uh, and my guess is one of the reasons why Fox likes this idea of the shale revolution as being good for America is because it's politically complicated. Uh, the, the environmental left has always been against the shale revolution. What impact is this going to have on the politics of environmentalism, Daniel? I think, um, may, well, what's happened is that energy security, which had fallen off the table, is now very much a, a central consideration. And that means that the endowment that the United States has, the capabilities the United States has, is it once again important. So I think it's a kind of rebalancing that goes on. And you see it in the Biden administration, where, of course, it continues to be committed to its net zero objectives, but at the same time also saying, you know, by the way, literally saying to the domestic U.S. oil industry, can you please increase production and saying to investors, will you ease up and, and, and support them in terms of increasing production? And the biggest increase in world oil production that's going to happen in the world this year is going to happen in the United States. Meanwhile, of course, I'm talking to you from California. And as all Californians know, gas prices are now above six dollars. Uh, uh, what difference is this making on domestic politics and consumption, well, the, the, think, the price think, of oil? Look, I think it's going it's looming really large uh, in the uh, coming uh, November election. It, 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 gasoline prices is one of those things that really move people. I mean, because I mean, if you're, you know, you're a teacher or you're a nurse and you drive 20 miles a day to work, 25 miles, even if your car is more efficient, uh, you're, you're starting to pay a more significant part of your income. I think, you know, for some people, I mean, more people will lean towards getting an electric car. Uh, so, they're, so they're not buying, but then they'll have to buy the car. Right. I, you had a, I, another piece in the journal um, about how electric self-driving cars are going to transform the car industry. But you also acknowledge that um, in, a, in a political piece that there are problems blocking America's electric car future. What are those problems, Dan? But the problem, well, there's two. One, of course, is simply um, getting the infrastructure in place to produce the cars and then the infrastructure in place to charge the cars because they do run on electricity. But the, the larger question and the one actually that kind of is preoccupying me are what about the 
you know, the sun, you know, the wind, those are free, but you need a lot of minerals. Uh, you need a lot of metals uh, to make an electric car. And at this point, at least 80% of the lithium ion batteries basically come through China. And China dominates a lot of the metals and minerals. 70% of the world's copper is smelted in China. Uh, and so I, I foresee a kind of a, a, a new geopolitics of, um, you know, of net, net zero, let's call it that way, of, of no carbon around these heart, these minerals that need to be mined and then they need to be put on ships and then they need to be transported in trucks uh, and then turn and, man and manufactured into batteries and other things. Uh, and not well recognized, but an electric car, you know, 20% of electric car is plastic. So, you know, the whole in kind of input into this, when you get to scale, it's going to be very demanding. And uh, the International Energy Agency has said it takes 16 years to open a new mine. So you're going to, in fact, one of the things I talk about in the new map is that we'll move from this that famous phrase that you see in headlines all the time, big oil, we're going to move to big shovels because you're going to need a lot more mining. And, you know, you don't open a mine in a year. It takes, as I said, it can take 16 or in some cases 20 years to get a mine and permit it uh, and an operation. That's why, of course, and as, as you said in The Atlantic and another interesting piece from last November, the energy transition or our energy transition is going to be so complicated. It's going to change geopolitics, isn't it, Daniel? It's going to make Africa in, in some ways much more important than the Middle East. Is that fair? Well, exactly. Uh, and minerals, it seems, are more concentrated, actually. So what is it? Half of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where child labor is endemic. And so I think the spotlight, there will be a spotlight on the that ESG, as it's called, spotlight will be turned on, on mining and and, and who's doing the mining and what the costs are. And you see the Chinese have uh, right. very quickly. I was talking to an Argentinian and he said it was quite striking. The Chinese companies are really active in Argentina now looking for lithium, which of course is a key ingredient for uh, electric car batteries. It's also gonna change the politics of the Middle East. Um, one of the, the more encouraging headlines this morning in the Times was a historic meeting uh, of Israel hosting three Arab foreign ministers uh, from the Gulf, uh, well, two of them from the Gulf, UAE and Bahrain and Morocco. The Egyptians have jumped in as well. Do you think that one of the unintended consequences perhaps of, of Ukraine might be a, a finally peace in the Middle East with Israel? Yeah, it wasn't that an extraordinary headline, an extraordinary story, Andrew, to see that you if you said three years ago, you, you'd say that's not never going to happen. I think it, it is. I think they're knock on effects. So the U.S. doesn't import much oil, you know, doesn't need to import oil from the Middle East anymore. And the Middle East countries say, well, wait, the Middle East isn't as important to the United States as it used to be. And so you see the United Arab Emirates, UAE and Israel signing a peace treaty. With, with of all people, uh, uh, Bennett, uh, the, the most hardline of hardline Israelis. Yeah, and 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 uh, Netanyahu. That's right. And um, the um, why did they do it? Well, partly it's because of economics, because dynamic economies, but it's very much about I think security and strategy and saying, look, at the U.S. appears to be stepping back from the Middle East. Iran, one way or the other, remains a uh, 
you know, an aggressive power in the region. And so we ought to get, we need to get together to uh, have a security relationship. And I think so, I think security as well as economics is very much at, at the heart of this. And uh, that is a big change. Uh, and, you know, if we were, if the U.S. was still importing 60% of its oil, it would be looking at events in the Middle East differently, I think. Daniel, let's end where we began with uh, Yan Ganesh's article about uh, the war in Ukraine, putting Silicon Valley in its place, suggesting that energy is much more important than tech. But of course, the reality is energy and tech are increasingly becoming the same industry. There was an interesting piece in the Times this morning about the memification of war, uh, associating Musk and Putin and their use of Twitter. Uh, we may not be able to name the CEO of ExxonMobil, but we can certainly name the CEO of Tesla. To what extent do you think men like, and they tend to be men like Elon Musk, need to grow up and take responsibility if they are indeed to run the world as both powers in energy and tech, uh, the inevitable powers of the future? Well, I, I don't know about, you know, I'm thinking what you mean. I have to think through what you mean by responsibility. But I think it is interesting that, um, you know, they used to talk about the seven sisters oil companies and the big three was General Motors, the, the American automakers. Now they talk about the big four in tech. And of course, the value of uh, Tesla is enormous. And something that started off as a idea over a fish restaurant in Los Angeles in 2003. Now you see the Teslas, so many of them the street and it's changed what the rest of the automobile industry is going to do in terms of electrification. So, you know, I don't think it's either or. Uh, I think it's that uh, obviously tech is transformative in so many different ways and so powerful and still the computer chips, AI and its, its role in the battlefield. But at the same time, energy continues to be fundamental and the world still gets 80% of its energy from hydrocarbons. And so the geopolitics, we're in a world in which you have the geopolitics of energy are going to be very important, but the geopolitics of tech will loom increasingly important as well. It's going to be a more complicated world. Well, you like complication, Daniel. You add to that, you've, you've exp you, you're one of the few people who can explain complicated in a coherent way. But let me, let me rephrase my question on Musk's responsibility. What I think I meant was, should Musk learn from the, from the, the nameless CEOs of ExxonMobil? Does, 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 do men like him in the future need to be less visible on social media and their association with uh, movie stars? Well, I think, you know, I think, I think Musk, you know, is a, um, a figure onto himself. Uh, I mean, you know, he is a Thomas Edison-like figure, not only in terms of uh, automobiles, but in terms of SpaceX and that determination and ability to make things happen. Look at now, we're not going to be using uh, Russian rockets anymore to send things into space. We'll be using his rocket. So, you know, I think a lot of credit to him for what he's achieved. Obviously, I can't speak to, you know, his personality and, uh, and use of Twitter and all of those things, because, you know, I, that's, a, that's a separate subject. But I think what we see is the tech companies are discovering some of the same things that the energy companies do, did discover when you get big and you get powerful and you get important and you have a big role in the economy, 
there's a lot more scrutiny of you, scrutiny, scrutiny of you, and that includes you spend more time in congressional hearings than you ever expected to do when you were starting your company. Well, that scrutinization also extends to Daniel Jurgen, perhaps the the most important figure in, um, in, in, in making sense of the world of energy, his new book or his new new book, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations is just out in paperback. Um, and he's wonderfully coherent in spite of the increasing complexity of the world. Uh, Daniel, as always, it's a pleasure. Let's end with the question I asked you 50 or 60 days ago. Uh, if you remember back then, I said to you, uh, Daniel, who's in charge? Who's running the world in February 2022, early February? Who's running the world in late March? Daniel, has it changed or is it, is it still the same people really running, calling the shots? Well, I think it's the same people. But um, to use an old Soviet phrase, the constellation of forces has changed. And at least for now, what's quite striking is a unity between Europe and the United States. That will be tested, I think. It'll be tested economically as some of the repercussions of what's happening continues. But I think that's, uh, to me, if I say the difference from early February to now is the this kind of new concert of powers. Uh, and the, what Putin, one of the things Putin hated and wanted to undermine was NATO. What he's done is enormously strengthen it.